I don't believe there is children's church this morning, so there are some activities and things like that in the back for the kids if you're looking for them in the, the basket there with your sermon notes. One of the things I really enjoyed last night was being able to come up front and sing Der Friedens first as a choir. And I think those of us who came up to the front as well as the congregation was impressed by how well it sang. And uh, all I could say was, imagine if we practiced. <laughs> That's just off the cuff. The only thing we missed last night was afterwards, one of my sons asked me, what does Der Friedens first mean? And I don't think we, had, we even had explained it, so I think that's important that we do that for, for those who don't know. I believe it's roughly translated the Prince of Peace. Is, is that correct? Okay. The Prince of Peace. That is what we're singing. Der Friedens first. It's, uh, it's a good reminder, the Prince of Peace, that Jesus has come. And as the, the angels just sang that we saw in the video, peace on earth. And yet we're reminded, and often it's at Christmas time, that on this earth there is still war, there is still conflict, there is still injustice and violence in so many places. And so we're reminded that this peace has to begin in our hearts, that this is a spiritual kingdom that must be birthed within before it can be realized without. And so the kingdom has come, but the kingdom is not yet. And so we still long for that day and pray for that day that we will experience the fullness of peace on earth. Wars will end and Jesus will reign forever. And so we anticipate that day even as we acknowledge the reality of there is still war and brokenness and suffering all around us. Jesus is the answer and we know that. And so we sing Der Friedens first, the Prince of Peace. He has come and he is coming. And most importantly for each one, that he has come within our hearts through faith. I would invite you now to bow with me as we once again look at this timeless story. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you, our Prince of Peace, that you have come long ago. The angels announced peace on earth, and we believe that it is so. For it begins within our hearts through faith, that you bring peace between us and God where before we were your enemies because of our sin, you broke down that barrier by taking the wrath, the punishment our sin deserves upon yourself, the Lamb of God. We thank you that you did this for us. And so now we are at peace with God. We are no longer at war. And so we experience this in our hearts. And we thank you that it is from this transformation within that we can begin to seek peace without Peace with our fellow man, peace with our, our families, peace with our neighbors, peace even as you commanded with our enemies, that rather than seeking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we return curses with blessings. And in this way, Lord, we see the cycle end. And so we pray for that, Lord, this Christmas time, that wherever there is war, would you, Lord, work in the hearts and lives and minds of everyone involved, from, from the lowliest to the highest, for, Lord, we know that you hold the king and his heart in your hand. We pray for the leaders involved, Lord, that they would truly have a change of heart and mind, that they would seek peace and pursue it rather than war. And so we, we pray for that this Christmas time. We pray now, Lord, as we look again at this timeless story of your coming into this world and all of the details that are so familiar help us to remember that this was 
not just a a run-of-the-mill birth. Instead, it was very unique, unlike any other in history. And the circumstances surrounding it were far from routine. Rather, they were quite chaotic. And in fact, they were dangerous. And so I pray that we would look at this once more and appreciate what it was that you went through to come for us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's sermon I've entitled, The Christmas Crisis. I've shared once before the story of a little four-year-old girl who often had trouble forgetting to close the front door when she entered the house, and especially when it's cold outside, well, that's quite expensive as the heat's just going out the door, and so her frustrated father, who had reminded her many times, close the door, close the door, And she forgot one more time, and so finally he scolded her quite abruptly. Shut the door! Were you born in a barn? And at this stinging rebuke, the little girl stopped. She looked up at her father and replied with an innocent, almost angelic smile, No, Daddy, but Jesus was. Now... There's a little girl who probably knows her dad a little too well, that a disarming smile and a cute response can probably turn aside his anger. But she also made a good point, that no, not very many people are born in barns, are they? But Jesus was. And this simple fact that Jesus was born in a barn, laid in a manger, or is often more abruptly described, a feed trough, well, it's something that every child knows. We rehearse it as we did last night. But those two facts alone tell us something right out of the gate that Jesus' birth was far from normal. It was far from ordinary. For while it's tempting for us to whitewash the nativity scene into a serene picture of domestic bliss, complete, of course, with friendly, smiling shepherds and animals and Uh, you know, magi standing off in the corner with their gifts, even though if we look at the details, they came much later than the shepherds did. But when we do this, we're actually doing ourselves a disservice because if something even remotely similar were to happen to someone in your family, let's say you know someone, or if it happened to you, where you were the one anticipating a baby and you were the one who had this chaotic last dash to try to find a place to give birth. And the only place you could find was a barn. And there's no medical service, there's no doctors, perhaps not even a midwife. And there in a barn, you're delivering not just any baby, but your firstborn baby. You don't know how this is going to go. You don't know if there's going to be complications. And into this setting, if we think of it in those terms, we suddenly realize that this is much more like a family in crisis than it is an idyllic sort of scenario. Well, in another story where you would categorize it in truth being stranger than fiction, I think many of you are aware that hospitals and healthcare is actually something that was started by Christians. Christians were the ones who sought to make things better for their fellow man, by beginning to to train people, to help others, and then to build things that ended up being called hospitals. And so one of these, way back in 1247, one of the earliest hospitals founded in England, was named St. Mary of Bethlehem. Two centuries later, it was then converted into a hospital for the mentally insane. 
Now, in those dark ages, the feeble-minded often were treated horrifically, cruelly. They were chained and abused like animals, and the institution became known throughout the country for its noise and confusion. Along the way, the original name of Bethlehem was gradually shortened to Bedlam. And that word soon became synonymous with a wild uproar and confusion. And so isn't that interesting and ironic that what, from what we would consider the idyllic and serene Bethlehem that this hospital was originally named after, St. Mary of Bethlehem, came to become our English word for Bedlam. But yet, if we can somehow set aside our, our images of cute children dressed in bathrobes, and we objectively consider the elements of this Christmas story, I would argue that Bedlam is a more accurate description. Let's consider the elements that we've read this morning. First, consider how Mary and Joseph's marriage began. It began well enough. Everything was honorable. We know that Joseph was a righteous man. We know from the angel's testimony that Mary was pure of heart. And so they start out, ideally, young and in love and a very respectable match, I'm sure, for both families. Here, a young, chaste woman engaged to a respectable young man is just what every parent would want for their children. But then imagine the shock, the sorrow, and the shame that all families felt when the news got out. Mary was pregnant. The only hint that we are given of Mary's parents in this story is where we read in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19 that Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. And so he intended to put her away quietly. Now, the only hint to Mary's parents in this process is that putting her away quietly would have involved Mary's father. And this process would have entailed a very painful, awkward, and humiliating meeting between Joseph and Mary's father. Dowries would likely be returned or arrangements made for their repayment because in those days that was a part of the marriage contractual agreement. First dowries would be given, later a bride price would be exchanged, things would be going both ways, and so if this was being ended and annulled, those things would have to be figured out. Then, of course, we, can, we uh, continue, and the angel, he visits Joseph in a dream, and it changes everything. However, though it changes everything for Joseph, no one else is going to believe him, even if he had bothered to tell them. For quite simply, a virgin conceiving a child without an earthly father, it was just as impossible and unbelievable back then as it remains to this very day. So in the eyes of everyone else, you come up with a story like that, they roll their eyes and say, sure, sure, we know what really happened here. No one would have believed it even if Joseph had told them about an angel. It simply was too fantastical. But Joseph knew the truth, and so he agreed to take the pregnant Mary as his wife. But in the eyes of everyone else, Joseph doing this was an admission of guilt. It meant Joseph was saying to the rest of the world, including his own families, that yes, this child is mine. I have not kept my passions in check until the wedding night, and therefore, in the eyes of everyone else, Joseph would not have been seen as quite a righteous man as they had previously thought. Oh, we must consider the ramifications, for the human hearts and passions haven't changed, 
from today all the way back then. In Nazareth, the tongues must have wagged, the gossips must have gossiped. And if you think that we Christians sometimes can be guilty of being overly critical or judgmental today when something like that happens, I will just tell you that it pales in comparison to my study of what the Jewish culture would have been like in those days. It would have been far, far worse. They were hypercritical, ultra-religious, and they lived under an entirely legalistic system. And so there, living within and under the Mosaic law, there was even a provision given that an adulteress could be stoned to death. And later on in John chapter 8, we can in fact read that account of how a woman caught in the very act of adultery was dragged before Jesus. And they said, what should be done with this woman? Shouldn't the law require she be stoned to death? So that is the environment that this is happening in. And so if Joseph had in fact insisted that no, this child is not mine, And if he had wanted to go to the ultimate lengths to clear his name that, yes, I'm a righteous man, it was not I who impregnated Mary, then he could have gone all the way to insist that, yes, she be stoned to death. And so as we consider these elements, yes, family in crisis. This is how it began. Joseph, however, knew the truth. The angel had told him this child was special. Unlike any other, before or since, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this knowledge was enough for Joseph. And so with little ceremony and undoubtedly no lavish wedding feast, Joseph took Mary to be his wife. Of course, that didn't change the fact that in the eyes of friends, community, their marriage was begotten in sin and would carry that stigma moving forward. Not exactly a great start for their marriage. Next, we consider the political climate. We think of the political climate in our world today as being chaotic, (laughs) lurching from crisis to crisis, polarization and name-calling and every possible thing we could think of in the political realm. Well, rewind 2,000 years and we find Judea is not much different. In fact, in some ways, you could even argue that it was worse. It was a time filled with fear and confusion. The constant threat of violence was omnipresent under the Roman occupation and their puppet government led by the cruel, paranoid, and maniacal King Herod. Now, it was the same government's mandatory census. Of course, we know the story begins, Caesar Augustus issued a decree for all the world to be taxed. This is how the story begins. This forced Joseph and his now nine-month pregnant wife into making a long, difficult journey from Nazareth all the way down to Bethlehem, his hometown where he had been born. Then upon their arrival, there's no local hospital or even an inn available for them. They're forced to find shelter from the night in a stable. Very likely, it would have been in what we would consider more of a cave than a stable by our standards, but that is very common in Bethlehem, and those, some of those caves can still be visited today. It would have been carved partially out of the rock, and there in that dirty, smelly, very unhygienic place with no nurses, no doctors, no, uh, what do you call those masks with the gas, right, for the pain? What's that called, Leanne? It's, a, it's, a, I, it's like laughing gas, I'm pretty sure, if you take too much of that. 
because I think that did happen one time. Uh, also, if that's not working properly, there's also no epidurals, right? There's, there's nothing for your assistance in this regard. Those things did not exist even in the best of circumstances in those days. But there in this setting, Joseph helps deliver his son. For yes, he would claim this son as his own, even though he knew it was not. And he would welcome it into a very dangerous world, one that would in a very short time have that same homicidal King Herod sending his soldiers in search of this child to murder him, which would then force them to flee for refuge in Egypt. Now, as a father myself, I have tried many times to put myself in Joseph's shoes in this scenario. And, and I can't even do it. I can't even begin to consider what it would be like knowing just what it was, especially for the first time going through it, which it was for him. Everything's new and, and, and everything about this scenario of you're caring for your wife and there's, there's dangers involved and there's, there's all these changes happening. I can't imagine if over top all of that was this element of now I have to run with this child because the government, the prime minister, is coming after us. He sent the police, he sent soldiers, and he wants to kill your baby. And yes, he will kill you if you're in the way. I can't even begin to fathom what that would have been like. And so as I think about that, this serene, peaceful, and idyllic nativity scene that we look at every Christmas time suddenly seems more like one giant crisis upon crisis. Now perhaps, I hope, this morning you're feeling quite serene and peaceful on this Christmas Day 2022. The fresh blanket of snow helps, I think, set that tone. I was saying this morning that whoever wrote the song, I'm Dreaming of a White Christmas, certainly was not born in Manitoba. <laughs> we don't dream about it. That, that's a reality. That's just a given. And so we can feel that way this morning. But there's also the possibility that there are things in your life that are not so serene this morning. It's quite possible that perhaps in some way you can identify with Mary and Joseph's stressful situation, their crisis upon crisis. Perhaps it's personal issues in your family or your extended family, dealing with stressed or fractured marriages, perhaps starting a family in not unlike Mary and Joseph, less than ideal circumstances. Or feeling perhaps that existential threat of political upheaval, that there is a government over us that we're not so sure about. There are so many scenarios that can cause us to even find one point of identifying with Mary and Joseph. Of course, Christmas is supposed to be a happy time, filled with, with celebration and, and family festivities, food, of course. And we also know that we're supposed to be bursting with love, joy, peace, and goodwill to all, but sometimes the reality is that we're not. Sometimes the reality is that to some degree we're faking it because we know we're supposed to. We throw a smile on, we say Merry Christmas, but deep down, if we were honest, it's not quite there the way we would want it to be. And it's not that we don't have any good feelings or that we don't want to have more good feelings. It's just that perhaps the circumstances, the trials, the things of life around us beyond our control have gotten in the way. Perhaps some of you are dealing with 
something that's hidden, like depression or anxiety. Perhaps you're trying to help someone else who is. Perhaps some of you are struggling with finances. You're feeling the pressure of rising interest rates, inflation, and and all the things going on in our world today that are beyond our control. And then throw on top that one of the most common stresses for this time of year is that, well, there's shopping to do. There's Christmas presents to buy, and often credit card bills get racked sky high. And you think, I'll worry about that in January. But then January still comes. Perhaps some of you are struggling spiritually. You're wondering where God is in your life. You're wondering why he hasn't been interceding or intervening the way he has in the past. Perhaps you're wondering why he just doesn't feel as close as he once did. And you're struggling with that. You still believe he's there, you know he is, but that nearness is something you're longing for, but it's not quite like it used to be. Perhaps an offshoot of that is feeling a lack of purpose or direction for life. You're, you're drifting along, wondering where this is all headed, going through the motions, wondering what the point of all this is. And then there's always the reality that some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have lost loved ones in this past calendar year, people very close to you, and this Christmas you're experiencing the first one apart. You're feeling that absence of their laughter and their presence And Christmas is often that time where those memories come right to the surface. There are so many more scenarios that I could continue to name. The feeling of insignificance, that your life really doesn't matter to anyone else. That you've been treated or judged harshly by others. Feeling estranged from friends or family members. uh, Knowing that there are people that you've seen every, every Christmas that this year something's happened and you won't be seeing them knowing that even if you do, the relationship won't be what it used to be because of unresolved words and hurts. There are so many more scenarios I could name. So what does this story of Christmas that I've just recounted, crisis upon crisis, a baby born in a barn, what what does this have to say to the reality of our world and our lives? Well, first, it says this. When we take off the rose-tinted glasses and we examine the actual circumstances surrounding Christ's birth, we discover that his coming into this earth was surrounded and entered into the exact same problems, the exact same challenges, the exact same consequences of sin that we face today. And in fact, we could argue that he went into much more than most. For the fact is that God did not avoid the problems of this world when he entered it. He didn't pick the easiest spot to go into, the most sanitized. In fact, he did the opposite. The humble Christ child entered this world right in the middle of all of its pain. Right in the middle of all of its difficulty and its political uncertainty and upheavals to meet with mankind exactly where they were. At their point of greatest need. Because for every last person, whether Mary or Joseph, the shepherds on a hillside, magi coming from a distant land, King Herod on his throne, the Pharisees who said, yes, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, it doesn't matter who they were in this story, he came for them all. Every last one he came for. 
My son Theo was just talking to me in the bench before I began this morning, and he was figuring things out, and he says, Jesus came to a barn and was welcomed by shepherds to show the world that he came for the lowly, but then the Magi came to show that he also came for the rich. And I said, that's right, Theo, you're getting it. And I said, there's one more wrinkle in the story, that the Magi weren't Jews. That was a big deal, because remember, Israel thought the Messiah was just for them. It was just for Israel, just for the Jewish people. He had come for them. He was their Messiah, after all. But those Magi came, pagans, Gentiles from a distant land, and yes, they came to worship their king as well, because yes, Jesus had come for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He came for the world. And praise the Lord, today we can say, that includes us. That includes you. That includes me. He came for all sinners who are in need of a Savior. And so this morning, our Lord Jesus, by the work of his Holy Spirit, he's ready to meet with us exactly where we are in this very moment. Not where we were a year ago or where we will be a year from now. Right here, right now, in this moment, he is here to meet with us. So if you're not feeling particularly loving or joyful or hopeful or peaceful right now, that's all right. You don't have to try to fake it for Jesus. You don't have to try to conjure up those feelings or throw on a forced smile for him. He doesn't want you to feel guilty for not feeling as festive as you think you should on this Christmas morning. Instead, Jesus wants us to come to him exactly where we are, exactly how we feel, because he will meet us there. And he wants us to focus on him, because he is the one who will meet every need according to his riches. It's not up to us to conjure them up. It is him. Focus on him. For he is the one who will meet us in our deepest needs and right where we are. And so we fix our eyes on him, as Hebrews 12 tells us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that you and I will not grow weary and lose heart. And so let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Even today he is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He has not stopped. He has not taken a day off. He doesn't take Christmas holidays. (laughs) We might. He doesn't. He intercedes. He cares. And he is there for us. For you see, from his conception to his birth, through his life, culminating in his death and resurrection, Jesus received the absolute worst that this world could throw at someone. But instead of being crushed by it, Jesus endured every last ounce of it and he overcame. And he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so since Jesus has already won that war with Satan and sin and death, then we ask what Paul asked. What circumstances could separate us from the love of God? What enemy remains that could rob us of our salvation? And if that answer is nothing and no one, then why do we so easily allow the troubles of this world and the attacks of the enemy to quench our love, to sap our joy, to steal our inner peace? 
For remember in John 10.10, Jesus summarized it like this. The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That's what he came to give to you today. Life to the full. Not just on Christmas morning, but every day of every year. So if this Christmas morning, in your mind and spirit, you know that right now your life isn't quite full the way that God wants it to be, then take heart, take hope, and fix your eyes upon Jesus. Jesus is ready to meet you exactly where you are with whatever you are facing with his mighty provisions. So why not welcome him into your circumstances today, whatever they might be? Why not even ask for his help this morning? I've found one of the most powerful prayers I can ever pray is three words long. Jesus, help me. I've prayed it so many times in my life. He's never once said, nope, you're on your own this time. So thankful for that. Jesus, help me. And he will. He is right with us, even when we don't see him. There's a great story told, I've shared it before, of Peter I, Emperor of Russia. He was known as a man of energy, great ideas, as well as strange moods, at least for a leader. In one such so-called strange mood, Peter I decided he would play the part of a beggar. And so, from door to door, dressed as a beggar, he tramped through the snow asking for help to see what sort of responses he would get. At each door, he would be turned away with either a harsh word or simply a door slammed in his face. Then finally, at one very humble home, a poor man showed him a little bit of kindness and even invited him in to share with him in his very meager supper. While the very next day, the man was astonished to see then the emperor's royal carriage fixed with the royal horses stopped outside his poor, humble home. And he was further shocked to see Peter I emerge from the carriage, dressed now not in beggar's clothes, but in his royal attire. He came to the poor beggar's, or not beggar's home, the poor man's home, and then he said to him, You welcome me into your home. Now allow me to welcome you into mine. And from that day forward, that poor man went and lived in the royal palace in Moscow. Isn't that an incredible picture of what Jesus did for us? For like that man, we don't have to wait until we feel good enough or spiritually strong enough or rich enough to welcome Jesus into our lives, into our our homes, as humble as they may be. It's not up to us to fix our life or our feelings or even say, it's when I'm done sinning this much, then I will welcome him in. No, we get it backwards. Welcome him, him in right now, for behold, he stands at the door and knocks. If any man hear his voice and open the door, he will come in and eat with him. This is his work and his conditions, all we have to do is open the door. But of course, he won't force his way in any more than Peter I did. If the door is slammed, he will move on. He enters only by invitation. So how about you today? Have you invited him into your life, into your marriage, into your family, into your circumstances, into your trials, 
If not, what do you have to lose? Let me encourage you this morning, Christmas 2022, to pray that three-word prayer. Jesus, help me. With all sincerity, and I promise you, according to the Lord's word, that he will. And you might even be amazed at what he will do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this morning, we honor you once more. And we pray these simple words. Jesus, help me. Help me, Lord, where I am weak. In my greatest struggles, in my doubts, in my fears. Lord, in those circumstances where I don't see a way forward. In those relationships that I don't see a way can be reconciled. Lord, help me. For we know you have grace. You have ability. You have strength that we lack. And Lord, most of all, where we struggle with sin and temptation, oh Lord, help me. Grant us grace for the forgiveness we need and grant us grace and strength to walk free and in victory. We thank you that you have made this all possible for us because of what you did enduring the cross, enduring every last ounce of hostility that man threw your way and you overcame. You are sitting at the right hand of the Father even now interceding for us, listening to the cries of our hearts. And so, Lord Jesus, with confidence we pray, help me, help us. For this Christmas time and for the days ahead, we pray that you would work in our hearts what is pleasing unto you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.